Welcome back to the Dietector Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we're going to talk about kidney disease. And this is the first part in sort of a two-part series of kidney disease. Uh, we're going to hear from Dr. Thomas Weems, and uh, who's a researcher at UC Santa Barbara, and his dietitian, Jessiana Seville, and about their program and how they approach uh, chronic kidney disease with nutritional therapy. And then in a later episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Keith Runyon, who's a nephrologist and has type 1 diabetes himself and uses a ketogenic diet to treat his type 1 diabetes and um, how he uses uh, uh, ketogenic diets for people with chronic renal disease as well. So it's an important topic because we hear very black and white comments that proteins, you know, bad for kidneys or ketogenic diets may be good for kidneys or are they bad for kidneys? And you really can't make blanket statements like that because what protein level are we talking about? Are we talking about animal or plant protein? Um, what level of chronic kidney disease are we talking about? And what is the underlying etiology of the kidney disease? All of these things come into play when you're really trying to define the proper diet for somebody who has concerns with their kidneys. And then kidney stones are a whole other topic as well. And again, what type of stone? And that comes into play for the specific diet. So just like we can't say there's one diet for everybody, we certainly can't say there's one diet for your kidneys as well. And ketogenic diets and high and low and medium proteins all play a role. So let's get into some of the details in this episode and the next episode about chronic kidney disease or kidneys in general and dietary interventions. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Thomas Wimes and from registered dietitian Jessiana Seville, who goes by Jess. Uh, so Dr. Wimes is a PhD in biochemistry from Germany. He did his postdoc at UC San Francisco, then in 2005 moved to UC Santa Barbara, where he's currently an associate professor. He runs his own lab where he focuses on the molecular mechanisms of polycystic kidney disease, which is referred to as PKD. So you're going to hear us talk a lot about that, but also related renal diseases and developing new therapies for these. So first, the difference between PKD, polycystic kidney disease, and CKD, chronic kidney disease, which is basically kidney disease from any cause. It doesn't specify, which of course the most common are type 2 diabetes and hypertension, which together make up 75% of chronic kidney disease. Um, and then uh, Jessiana Seville, who is a registered dietitian and renal nutrition expert. She's at kidneynutritioninstitute.org. Um, they both are involved in um, santabarbaranutrients.com and renew-nu.org. Where you can find lots of information about them and the work they're doing. So a couple of things to talk about is in this interview, we talk a lot about the the stages of kidney disease. And it's so important because there's normal, mildly impaired kidney dysfunction, moderately impaired, and severe kidney dysfunction. And really you got to draw the line between sort of mild and moderate, which is usually what we call like stage two, stage three in that area of kidney dysfunction. And it's usually defined by GFR or glomerular filtration rate, which is basically how, how well or how efficiently um, and how quickly your kidneys are filtering the blood um, to filter out the toxins and whatever. It's because the glomeruli are where that filtration happens. So that's the, that's the topic there, just so you know what those terms mean. Um, and we talk about you know 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo of protein per day, which is pretty low compared to what diet doctor usually recommends. But when we talk about that, that's again in the moderate to severe kidney dysfunction group, really towards the severe. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. So with that laying the groundwork, let's get into the interview with uh, Dr. Thomas Wimes and with Jessiana Seville. 
Well, Thomas and Jess, thank you both so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Great, great. Well, I want to jump in uh, with you, Thomas, and, and talk about um, kidney disease. And now your specialty is is polycystic kidney disease, but as we discussed offline, you mentioned that you deal with all sorts of chronic kidney disease. And in the U.S. and in sort of, you know, industrialized worlds, industrialized nations, the, the top two causes of kidney disease tend to be diabetes and hypertension. So tell me how you see the, the field of chronic kidney disease and the role that nutrition can play in that and how that sort of led you to where you are today and your, your approach to kidney disease. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, as you know, chronic kidney disease is actually very, very common, you know, affects over 10% of the population uh, in the U.S. and worldwide. So most people, um, you know, tend to forget that oftentimes. Um, it's, a, you know, very, very common uh, sort of like epidemic levels, if you will. And um, as you mentioned, diabetes, hypertension, you know, the most common causes. Um, what we have been focusing on is a, um, a genetically determined uh, form of chronic kidney disease, polycystic kidney disease or PKD, um, where, you know, the patient inherits um, um, a defective gene from one of their parents, has a 50-50 chance of getting the gene, developing the disease. Um, it affects about 600,000 people in the U.S., so it's still fairly common. Um, and um, But really, um, the gene mutation essentially kicks off chronic kidney disease in these patients. And, you know, it's maybe much more predictable than uh, diabetic uh, chronic uh, kidney disease, if you will. So if you have the gene, you have the uh, disease. Um, that makes it, of course, a little easier to study, uh, a little easier maybe to do clinical trials with and so on. Um, and we have been studying polycystic kidney disease in, you know, in, in the research lab um, for 20 plus years or so. Um, and we've been using uh, mouse and rat models of the disease. So obviously you can you know, replicate the disease uh, in those models with, um, by introducing those gene mutations. So uh, things you know, can be studied maybe in a you know, kind of refined way. Um, and um, Essentially, what, what we find, um, I think, um, you know, you know, initially, you know, we think it holds true for polycystic kidney disease, but um, since the mechanisms of progression in chronic kidney disease in general, uh, including PKD, are essentially the same, they're the same molecular pathways and so on, we think that whatever we would find in polycystic kidney disease has a high chance of being, you know, translatable to CKD in general. Yeah, that's interesting, the, the overlap between polycystic kidney disease and chronic kidney disease. Although I'd imagine the worst case scenario would be someone with polycystic kidney disease with diabetes and with hypertension. That would be sort of a recipe for disaster, I'd imagine. So it seems like there's kind of two approaches, though. One approach would be to do whatever you can to treat diabetes and hypertension. And the other approach would be to do whatever you can from a nutrition standpoint to protect the kidneys themselves. Um, which sometimes might be two different dietary approaches or a single dietary approach. So, so Jess, let me ask you, uh, uh, from the nutrition side of things, how do you see the nutritional approach to chronic kidney disease? So this is a great question, and I want to answer it on two layers, also layering with polycystic kidney disease. So when uh, Dr. Wyme's research came out in 2019, our practice was really, really heavily involved with plant-based diets. That's, you know, the word on the street in the kidney world. That's the hot topic. That's what people are doing. That's what research has supported. 
And so looking at the ketogenic research in particular, I was like, hmm, this is this is going to be tricky, right? How are we going to do it? You know, there's so much evidence to support kidney function from a plant-focused approach, and yet the dietary, you know, the emerging evidence is showing that ketosis is going to be beneficial for PKD. And I'll be really honest, Dr. Sher, for our folks with PKD, we hadn't been seeing great results with a plant-based diet. Like we just weren't getting the same results and I, I, I could not figure out why. So our challenge was in looking at this approach is we had to look at not only for polycystic kidney disease, you know, what are the kidney stressors? And for us, that means we have to get the protein level down a little bit lower for uh, especially people with later stages. And, you know, we use that approach across, you know, PKD, CKD, but the protein amount's pretty important. And um, then we had to think, how could we keep it very plant focused? And merging that into a ketogenic diet took a good bit of work and thought to make sure that it wasn't a malnourishing diet and it was also a doable diet. <laughs> and that was, you know, part of our processes, avoid kidney stressors, but also how do we prevent progression? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to sort of spell it out in terms of, you know, the, the two different focuses, one, as you said, being plant-based and one being the ketogenic diet. And although the other, I guess the third being sort of lower protein. Now, the way I see kidney disease and kidney health as it terms to protein, which is such a hot topic right now, the way I see yeah. it is that if you have normal kidney function or even sort of mildly diminished kidney function with low GFR, that the protein is not so important from that standpoint. But once you get past that mild um, kidney disease into moderate or certainly severe kidney disease, and I imagine this holds for polycystic kidney disease, then protein does become more important and lowering the protein level can help prevent further deterioration of GFR or kidney function. Now, does that summary sort of hold with the way you both of you look at it? There's two issues there because it's one, the macro issue, right? Macronutrients, how much macro protein is involved in the diet. And yes, what you said is true for a lot of people is that at higher stages, the, the protein is not so much an issue and are really careful with how we use plant-based diets and that approach. Uh, the other thing that's interesting and with polycystic kidney disease in particular the research doesn't hold as consistent with like a very restricted protein intake as it does for CKD, um, especially for the higher stages. So that's one piece of it. The other piece though that we're considering is what protein in and of itself has that might be a kidney stressor outside of amino acids. So for example, very protein heavy diet can be quite acidic and where metabolic acidosis and alkalinity is really important for PKD and CKD, that's you know another way that we're looking at how those two balance. Okay, yeah, I just want to get back to that the the acidity standpoint. But but Thomas, do you have do you have more to add there? Well, regarding protein, I think there's also a bit of a difference um, in the quality of the protein, uh, whether it's animal protein or plant based protein, um, because typically. Protein sources from animals are um, much higher in uh, the amino acid cysteine and methionine, which just happen to be metabolized in such a way that they are very acidifying. Uh, so it leads to a, a much more acidic urine pH, um, which then in turn lowers uh, urine citrate levels. So it causes sort of a certain degree of hypocitraturia. 
Um, and uh, all this together um, increases the risk for um, kidney stone formation. And even prior to you know getting a kidney stone, you know there are all these microcrystals um, that can form in kidneys, uh, such as calcium oxalate um, and uric acid uh, micro uh, microcrystals um, that um, are all much more um, likely to form uh, under acidic uh, conditions. So I think that's uh, maybe, and that's actually the reason, maybe the, one of the main reasons why. Uh, in chronic kidney disease, one would choose um, more plant-focused uh, diets mm -hmm. um, to kind of stay away from these acidifying um, uh, proteins. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You, we Again, sort of two different things to look at. One is further progression or worsening of actual kidney function, which we estimate by the glomerular filtration rate. But the other is formation of kidney stones. So, But when some people hear plant-based for kidney stones, they would think like, oxalates, you know, oxalates come from plants. Calcium oxalate stones are the most common, um, most common stones in, in, among anybody. Um, so is that a problem when you go to a more plant-based diet, if you're eating lots of spinach and lots of nuts and things that have oxalates, is that more of a concern? That, that is a concern. Exactly. That's why, um, uh, I think Jess and her team, had to work really hard to make this work um, because just as you said, you know, if somebody hears, oh, I want to switch to a plant-focused diet, you know, the first thing they say is, oh, let me eat more spinach and more yeah. chard and <laughs> more uh, nuts and this and that. And then um, before you know it, your oxalate intake goes through the roof uh, and everything backfires. So um, that um, took, I think, uh, Jess and her team and, you know, she can comment much better on this um, quite a bit of... Um, work um, to try to exclude or limit uh, those um, types of plant foods uh, and find others uh, to replace with. Yeah, the so the the trick for us, yeah, we're kind of the rubber hit the road here. Is we thought, okay, <clears throat> if we're going to do a plant focused approach, we we actually tried to make it one hundred percent vegan at the first, <laughs> and it a it was not nourishing. Uh, and B, it was miserable. And C, we didn't have any way to balance out the oxalates because uh, oxalates is not just about how much you intake from your food. It's about how much you bind in your gut. It's about your gut health. It's about how uh, acidic your urine is so you don't develop crystals to begin with. So there's, you know, those three big parts of oxalate management. And so when we look at, you know, a plant-focused ketogenic approach, we look at oxalate management, not just restriction. Uh, that's very, very important. I'll tell you though, the one part that's really tough on a keto diet that's oxalate managed is eliminating almonds because <laughs> they're in like all the, like all the keto food. They're so simple and easy, and like they just fit in a lot of keto diets really nicely, but they. They just don't work in ours. So we do no almonds in our diet. Yeah. So you mentioned it's about sort of oxalate management rather than oxalate restriction. Yeah. So what do you, what helps with oxalate management? So there's a couple different layers. So number one, calcium and magnesium combined oxalate in the gut. So that's number one is that if you're going to eat a heavy oxalate source, that having some sort of calcium with it is very, very important. Um, or that's how we teach our patients. So we don't do a totally plant-based approach because we really needed some of the dairy products have a little bit more calcium in them to balance that out. So 
there's number one, binding it in the gut. Number two, making sure that the gut is in good shape anyways. Uh, you know, the microbiome, it always comes up, but you have bacteria in your gut that generate oxalates. So if your gut is kind of a disaster, you're going to be at more risk of that, of a heavy oxalate load. Um, and then the third thing is making sure that your urine is, you know, pretty alkaline. And you can do that by having a good amount of citrate in your diet. Um, also by just having a heavy plant base as well. And, you know, that's, where, you know, Thomas's research and Santa Barbara's, uh, Santa Barbara Nutrients research has really come into play to develop a product that can kind of cover all the bases there. <laughs> and that makes it really simple, but you know, there's a lot you can do with diet too. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so Thomas, tell, tell me about the difference between acidic blood and acidic urine, because you know, we, we have so, so many sort of checks and balances in our system to try and keep the acidity level in our blood pretty consistent. And uh, I don't know, my, my take on the literature is that the, the acid base of the blood doesn't change a whole lot with dietary components. Um, that's how I read the literature. I'd be curious if you think differently, but I haven't looked into as much how it changes the acidity of the urine. So can the urine be more affected than the blood and how to tell us a little bit about that interaction? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, usually the blood pH level is just like rock solid, you know, and, and for good reasons, <laughs> because if it deviates a little bit, um, you're dead. <laughs> um, so, you know, bad, bad things happen. So usually I don't think it's very easy to affect um, blood pH level with diet at all. Uh, that may not be a thing at all. Um but the function, you know, one of the important functions of the kidneys is to actually regulate um, the blood pH level by excreting more acid or uh, more base, depending on the need. Um, and that's, uh, so in a sense, it, the urine that, that's produced becomes, um, you know, flips up and down in, in, in the pH and it can happen, you know, throughout the day. Um, and it just depends uh, literally on, on what you eat, uh, a lot of that. Um, so the urine pH is really what, what we're talking about when we're talking about an um, acidifying diet. It's not about the blood pH, and it's always the urine pH. Um, yeah, and um, it just so happens that um, ketogenic diets in general, or just being in ketosis, is um, actually just by itself acidifying because the ketones, you know, are acidic, and you know, essentially, you're turning a neutral triglyceride into you know acids. Um, so. Um, usually if anyone is on a ketogenic diet, you know, you tend to have a, a much lower urine pH. Um, and, you know, if it's then on top of that, an, uh, a meat-based um, ketogenic diet where you have all the cysteine and methionine in there, um, it it's, makes it even worse. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, um, sort of like a heavy uh, animal-based ketogenic diet may not be the best choice uh, necessarily for somebody with kid, uh, kidney disease. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, you, you, you do other good things with it. You know, usually, you know, you obviously cut out sugar, um, which tends to, you know, not elevate your uric acid anymore and, and those kind of things. So there's a little bit of, of a balance in there. So I wouldn't say an animal-based ketogenic diet is necessarily terrible for kidneys. Um, but um, if somebody has chronic kidney disease, um, I think you'd want to be careful there, and um, that's that's the reason why um, we're you know going the plant-based approach. Oh, yeah. it's not plant, but it's plant-focused. Right. 
to get back to what you said earlier, Justin, you said you weren't getting the results you had hoped for from a just a plant-based diet by itself. But when you transition to a ketogenic version of a plant-focused but not completely plant-based diet, then you started to see um, better clinical improvements. So I'm curious what you think it was, uh, both of you actually, what you thought it was about the ketogenic diet, about being in ketosis that made the difference. Was it just getting rid of the sugar, like you just said, Thomas, or was it something else about being in ketosis that can help with polycystic kidney disease or chronic kidney disease in general? Maybe you can start there. So, um, so this um, came out of my lab's research um, on, on animal models, um, where we uh, initially found that reducing food intake um, uh, turned out to be tremendously beneficial in polycystic kidney disease. Um, and um, we initially published a paper and we had no idea why this actually worked. And then we followed up in with the research to figure it out. And it turned out that it's really the metabolic state of ketosis uh, itself that seems to be um, highly beneficial in polycystic kidney disease. Um, and we were even uh, able to replicate the beneficial effects by just supplementing with beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, just by itself on top of a you know, regular high-carb rodent show. Um, suggesting that that is really um, something about that, uh, about the um, the metabolic switch from glucose, you know, away from glucose towards ketones. Um, and of course, you know, um, as you know, BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate is not only a fuel that, that is burned for energy, but it also is a very important signaling molecule. Um, it is an, in a high, you know, has pretty important anti-inflammatory effects. Um, and inflammation is um, uh, already known to be a, a very important contributor to chronic kidney disease and PKD in particular as well. Um, so we think it's really, um, you know, that aspect um, of, of ketosis itself um, that is um, that is beneficial. I'll just share a couple anecdotes that I think are important here. And not so much on the mechanisms. I think Thomas described it pretty well. But <clears throat> for people with polycystic kidney disease, uh, it is a slow march down to dialysis. Like that's basically the story that they see from their relatives. Remember it's genetic. So they will have seen their aunt or their grandma or their mom or dad struggle with it. And uh, for us starting to see patients where their GFR would actually bump up. Like we start the approach and six to 12 weeks later, we start seeing people's GFR improve that was, even if it just stayed stable for some of them, that was a huge, huge win. And I think some of that is that mechanism of, uh, you know, obviously how glucose feeds cysts. I think the other thing for a lot of people is that as you start pulling in like a heavy amount of plants, uh, you know, plants are so nutrient dense and, you know, I know there's a variety of opinions from people in the carnivore world versus plant-based. And, you know, there's swirlings of opinions. But the reality is the plants hold many, many powerful nutrients, whether that's helping your liver work better or just nurturing your gut. Because, again, there's a strong connection, I feel like, with a PKD and gut health for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I think that's, there were just a lot of different pieces that could play into it. And, you know, on our side, one thing that we're watching in our patients, since this is a new approach, uh, is what their kidney volume actually looks like. And we have had some people now on the approach over a year and their kidney volume hasn't changed. And like that, like more than GFR, that is really, really significant 
really significant finding. Can you can you describe what kidney volume is and, and how you test for it? Sure. It's, uh, you know, so done and, and Thomas, just correct me if I had something wrong here, but uh, they usually do a MRI or a CT scan and they can measure the size of the, the kidneys. And, you know, polycystic kidneys can get really, really big, really, really big. You know, some women, they complain because it makes them look like they're pregnant, actually, and they'll complain of you know, PKD belly, or, you know, cause a lot of pain because they get really massive just because of the cysts gross getting so big. Um, yeah. But they measure, you know, the size of the kidneys and they can measure how big the kidneys are. I think some of the more advanced imaging can, you know, get like a good like volume, you know, what is the actual volume in the kidneys and they they put that as the measurement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, the total kidney volume. Um, it, you know, that's an um, important thing in polycystic kidney disease because, in contrast to many other forms of chronic kidney disease, in PKD the kidneys actually expand over time, and yeah. you know they can get massively large, uh, as as just mentioned. Um, so that's one of the measures of of um, progression in in um, polycystic kidney disease is not only the kidney function decline, but also just the increase in total kidney volume. Um, yeah, and maybe one thing to add also is, um, you know, when we published um, our paper um, using the animal studies and on, uh, you know, the beneficial effects of ketosis, um, of course, patients are smart, they re read papers as well. And, you know, kind of the news spread like um, in a wildfire that um, there's this paper out there saying that ketosis and ketogenic diets are beneficial in these animals with PKD and um, lots of patients um, started to, you know, just implement it on their own and, you know, they're, you know, Google around and um, find different recipes. And, and um, I think it was a little bit of a Wild West um, scenario almost. Um, you know, doctors ne not ne were not necessarily, um, you know, wanting them to do that. Um, um, but it, so it turns out that a lot of um, PKD patients um, had already experimented with um, ketogenic diets um, and we were actually able to um, uh, recruit about 130 of them into a retrospective uh, clinical study um, just to see what their experience have, has been. Uh, and uh, the results were actually quite stunning. Um, so I didn't expect it to be so clear cut. Um, uh, the paper was published um, just recently. Um, and, um, we, you know, there were um, the average duration in the study of people, uh, people being on ketogenic diets was about six months. Mm -hmm. So, you know, recent time. And, um, um, you know, um, the um, it's kind of self-reported outcomes in questionnaires and pain and, you know, uh, different symptoms of PKD. But we also collected the uh, medical data, uh, the, you know, uh, glomerular filtration rate data, um, and uh, blood pressure and so on, everything across the board uh, improved, strangely, um, interestingly, right. including even the um, the kidney function metric, you know, the glomerular filtration uh, rate based on creatinine, which um, is somewhat unheard of. Um, that usually does not happen in polycystic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. It's um, you know, a rel relentlessly progressive disease that uh, essentially never gets better uh, yeah. in those at least it, it got um, better for many of them. So Well, that's really interesting because I'd imagine if people started themselves on a keto diet, it was not likely going to be a plant-based keto diet because that's usually not the default that people go to. And it probably wasn't a low-protein keto diet either. And 
and yet there was still benefit. So I think that's a really interesting right. finding. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. So, um, also, you know, there's a little bit, so the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate, you know, is essentially measured by measuring creatinine, which indirectly is somewhat affected by the meat consumption. Um, right. Right. So somebody could argue, oh, you know, maybe um, you saw the improvement because of the change in diet. But as you said, if somebody starts a meat-heavy ketogenic diet, you would expect um, the opposite effect. Uh, mm -hmm. So... Um, I think that that makes it um, you know, pretty interesting as well. So findings like that have been really important because it's helped us kind of stratify how restrictive we need to be with the protein. One thing that worried us as clinicians is we'd see, you know, different people come in and we work with a lot of people at late, like late, late stage, like GFR less than 20. But we would see for them that when they did go high on their protein, that they could totally knock out their kidneys. And we had people that came in and their kidney function was like dropping like a rock really fast. Mm -hmm. They implemented a ketogenic diet and it was very, very meat heavy. And now they were like on the verge of, you know, dialysis decisions. And so I think clarity from both sides of that for who can get an impact without being very restrictive is really important for yeah. quality, you know, quality of life and long-term engagement versus who does need to be really careful with the protein intake. And if you don't have, you know, if you can't go to lots of chicken and fish and, you know, even bacon, as like your, your keto foods that satisfy you, how are you going to make that dietary approach work? And so we wanted to address it from every stage. And, you know, it's really interesting when we look at some of our later stage people and what's happened for them in the approach because you know people will go on and off and so we've seen the impact of higher protein lower protein stay in ketosis don't stay in ketosis and we've started to develop more clinical judgment around that yeah well that's really interesting and i think that comes down to you know how we we oftentimes try to simplify things too much and i say we as like the medical community in general like protein's bad for kidneys or you know keto's good for kidneys or you know whatever but it's it's not that kidneys are one thing. So we really have to be clear about where you are on that spectrum from normal Beautiful. kidney function to dialysis and somewhere on that spectrum. And that's going to make a difference. So we, we've talked about protein quite a bit, high protein, low protein, but give us some numbers of what you tend to shoot for with your patients with PKD. Um, cause we know too low a protein could lead to sarcopenia and loss of lean muscle mass. So you don't want it to go too low, but then in that chronic kidney disease population too high, like you're saying, could, could potentially harm kidney function. So what's your sort of sweet spot that you aim for in that kidney disease population? That's a great question. So we just analyzed this last week. Uh, we had built the approach off of like uh, some pretty strong concepts. And then we went through all of our uh, Renew participants, people in our group programs, food logs, because they take actually great food logs, which gives us tons of information. And we looked at what is, you know, in this approach that's plant-focused, what is the average protein? And we were getting around 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is drastically different from like Bulletproof, for example, is 1.5 to 1.7 grams per kilogram. That's about what they end up shooting for. And a normal protein intakes around 0.8 to 1 gram. <laughs> so uh, kidney guidelines right now support a 0.6 to 0.8 gram per kilogram. And we were hitting that like spot on. Um, so for our people, especially later GFRs, that's what we aim for, 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram. 
um, that ends up being somewhere around, it actually mirrors the net carbs kind of closely, which is funny to me, but you know, for someone who's on, you know, around 2000 calorie diet, they have, um, ours is a more liberal keto approach, obviously for plant-based reasons, they, they end up hitting around 35 to 40 grams of net carbs and their protein ends up being somewhere around there to, you know, 35 to 50 grams of protein a day. Yeah. So, so for me, like that, that sounds just so low. Um, right. but of course I don't really deal with people with PKD and chronic kidney disease. So I don't, you know, I don't see them very often. So, um, do you have concerns about lean muscle mass loss or frailty or sarcopenia as some of these patients, um, age and move on eating that much protein? Yeah, that, that's a good, that's a really, really good question. And, uh, I mean, malnutrition is the hottest nutrition topic in kidney disease for sure, <laughs> by far. Um, but what we have, there's a couple of things that we've seen is number one, we haven't seen a lot of lean muscle mass. Um, some of that, you know, muscle mass loss can come when people get too restrictive with their calories overall. And so if we start seeing like lean muscle mass or uh, people losing weight or losing strength, a lot of times, honestly, we can balance it out with um, improving, increasing their calories. <clears throat> and for some people, we do increase their protein level. Uh, for some people that are later stages, we don't increase the dietary protein intake, but we might add on uh, what's called a keto analog amino acid. So it's basically amino acid supplement without nitrogen. So there's a couple different ways that we can address that. And it's, you know, a weekly question for us when we're working with our patients, like, how is your weight? How are you feeling? How's your strength? Um, we actually have many of our patients with polycystic kidneys that come in, they're quite fit, very active. And uh, so we can assess that. And, you know, we haven't seen a lot of problems with that, honestly, uh, yeah. that hasn't really been an issue. And again, like numbers are slightly arbitrary and that's where good clinical judgment comes in. Cause for some people you say, Hey, like you probably need to do a little bit more protein. So like, let's add it in. Let's watch your numbers. Let's see how things go. And so it's one of the things to, to work on. The one piece that we have been particularly mindful of recently, and this is really, really important with the ketogenic diet, is meat is a very significant source of carnitine, right? Like that is one of the main ways that we intake it. When you're on a very low protein diet, you have to be very, very mindful for your patients of if you know, that they are getting carnitine in. And I mean, already, you know, supplement, supplementing with carnitine for keto is pretty, pretty regular. Um, but for us, it's standard, like almost every single person, if they're bringing their protein down that low, we have to add in some L-carnitine. Now, now Thomas just mentioned about the, the 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo as sort of like the kidney recommendations for, for people with chronic kidney disease. Is that yeah. the standard recommendation? Thomas, mm -hmm. do you think we could go, that people could go higher if it was, you know, more soy-based protein, more pea-based protein, that pushing that to one or even maybe 1.2 grams per kilo wouldn't have the same effect on kidney function for people in chronic kidney disease compared to if it was an omnivorous uh, approach? Right. Um, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, there is actually... 
for earlier stage um, uh, CKD patients and, and PKD patients, there is not a very strong correlation between uh, protein intake and um, <clears throat> and the outcomes there. Um, so that you know had been controversial a, a few years ago, and um, I think it has been now settled that there is like really not a very strong link there. Um, but the equation change, changes as soon as somebody gets closer and closer to renal failure, then everything changes you know, with nutrition uh, in, in those patients. Um, and um, I think uh, Jess is, is in particular talking about folks that are, you know, at uh, CKD stage three and so on, um, and, you know, sliding towards four, um, where it becomes much more uh, restrictive over time. Yeah. Um, so probably earlier stage and. Um, the thing about um, patients with PKD is um, they typically are diagnosed um, fairly early. Um, so even if they have um, perfectly intact kidneys, um, they're still at CKD stage one or two. Um, they already know they have the disease. Um, so I think at those stages, um, I don't think there's much um, need to restrict protein too strongly. Um, but what, what is probably still a good idea is, is switching over from animal-based um, protein over to plant-based yeah. just to prevent those you know, kidney stoning and crystal issues. Okay. Yeah, so let's, let's transition to, uh, again, to go back to some of the practical aspects of it. So if, if we're talking about starting a plant-heavy, plant-protein-type diet for people with chronic kidney disease, what are the main go-to sources of protein and what are other supplements? You already mentioned the L-carnitine. What other supplements do you, do you need to focus on? Yeah, so to answer kind of go-to. So for us, I'll just give you an example of what a day would kind of look like. Um, so a lot of our patients, I'm like literally thinking of the pictures of the meal plans in my head. They might start out their day with a very fat-heavy smoothie. We use a good amount of coconut and uh, coconut milks, they might start with a very fat, heavy smoothie. Maybe they'll do some eggs with, you know, a lot of vegetables in them. Uh, they might do cauliflower porridge in the morning and, you know, load it up with extra fat. That would be a breakfast type option. Usually for most people, it's around, you know, 10, 10 to 15 grams of net carbs. Um, and then for lunch, it often would be a very large salad of some sort, uh, you know, we have a keto club salad that people love, um, or people do a stir fry and they might use some nuts there as a protein or a very, this is not common on occasion. Our patients will do a really, really small amount of legumes. Um, but that's not their favorite way to use carbs. So they don't do that all the time or put an egg on it. Um, really heavy on the dressing, a lot of good olive oil we'd use there. And then, uh, for dinner, they, people would do a salmon or some people like to do a small amount of shrimp. Um, some people will do a little bit of chicken. We do tend to focus more on, um, on fish as our protein source, but they might do salmon, especially cause it's so fatty, you know, great sauce with it, a good amount of sauteed vegetables on the side. And then we fill in a lot of the calorie holes with um, like sun sunflower butter, fat bombs. We have some really good uh, lemon blackberry fat bombs that they'll utilize. Um, we use, uh, uh, we do like a pesto mayonnaise that they'll dip vegetables in. That's out of this world. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Like the diet is so delicious because fat's just really good. <laughs> so yeah. that's what they would look like. I mean, honestly, when we, we mapped it out, it is about 50% plants. You know, people are getting, you know, 
35 to 45 grams of fiber a day. Um, it's just very nutrient dense, very colorful, very pretty. Yeah. Um, and then on supplements, we always make sure they have a B complex. That is a standard supplement, L-carnitine. Uh, we'll use either calcium citrate or we use a keto citra, which is Santa Barbara nutrients product, which is a BHB citrate product. And that helps us make sure that we're have a oxalate binding source on board. So those are like the three essentials must have. And then, you know, clinically you might look at vitamin D status and that's pretty regular. Right. Zinc also use on a pretty regular basis, not long-term, but I do feel like it's super hard to get enough zinc in without some good, heavy, you know, meat sources. So interestingly, you mentioned eggs and salmon as some common yeah. protein sources. Now yeah. I think of those as animal-based protein sources, but do those have less of a urine acidification effect than, than meat or chicken or other sources? Is that why you go to them? No. So, uh, so when we're looking at this approach again, like remember I, I said that we tried to do it totally vegan. And when we looked yeah. at even like, you know, acid content or just how palatable it was going to be, or, you know, what it was going to look like, we just, it didn't look very good. Honestly, <laughs> I just feel like we would have been robbing Peter to pay Paul. So we looked at what are, what are the protein sources we get the most bang for our buck on an animal source. And so we weren't looking so much at, because um, we knew we were going to be so plant heavy, are these like the least, you know, acidifying or whatever. We're looking at where do we get really like tons and tons of benefit. And, you know, fish and the omega-3s in there are really, really powerful. And so we thought, that is, you know, that's one that we can add in. It's simple for a lot of people. So we added in more fish sources um, and then eggs as well. The the choline to me is really important in the eggs and it's just hard to get choline without animal sources, honestly. I mean, like five cups of quinoa, but you're not going to do that on a keto diet. So, um, so we put eggs in. They're also easy, familiar for people. There's tons of stuff you can do with them. So that's why we picked eggs as another source that we could utilize. And um, so far, that's worked out good for our late stage people. So it's not 100% vegan. We also use, oh, I didn't mm. mention this. We use um, some cheese and cheese, just because cheese is pretty amazing. And so we use cheese in there and we'll use um, some full fat cream, some, you know, grass fed butter works really good as well in the approach. Yeah. And I like how you're really blending sort of the science of what you need to do with the practical nature of what are people going to eat? Because- yeah. You can you can you can find the most scientifically scientifically backed diet that's the best in the world, but if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter because nobody's going to eat it. So I, I really right. like how you have that approach. So I think that's really helpful. One other thing is that when we developed the approach, we did it. Like I mean, Thomas has done the approach through <laughs> the class. Uh, Diana Bruin, who's you know one of the PKD experts, she did it. I've done it. Like the food's good. Like we create our own recipes and we like them. And our patients regularly tell us that they're like, man, this food is so good. My family likes it. We like it. And it's just, you have to change your lifestyle a little bit to love food. Put it as a back. Well, well this has been great. So I, everybody should definitely check out renew, R-E-N-N-U.org and santabarbaranutrients.com and kidneynutritioninstitute.org. 
three great sites to see what you all are up to. But so Thomas, tell us what's coming next for you, either from a research standpoint or academic standpoint. Yeah, so you know, in my academic lab at UC Santa Barbara, we're trying to understand the the actual mechanisms. You know, why is ketosis beneficial? Is it um, is it really the BHB? Um, is it uh, BHB acting on its receptor? Is it BHB doing one of the many gazillions of other things that it can do? Um, and then on in the um, you know in the startup company Santa Barbara Nutrients, um, the focus is really um, you know we've produced this medical food keto citra that uh, that uh, just mentioned, um, and um, we're gearing up to do um, a clinical study um, at the University of Toronto. So that's the whole renew program uh, together with you know keto citra as an integral part, um, and uh, we'll test um, this in uh, patients with polycystic kidney disease. So I'm excited um, for this clinical trial to get off the ground. Um, we're also um, looking at other um, types of uh, kidney disease. Um, you know, one that I'm you know, very excited about is uh, uric acid uh, induced chronic kidney disease. You know, patients with gout very, very often go on to form uh, chronic kidney disease. Uh, and I think the reason is Simply these uh, uric acid crystals that just shreds the kidney uh, to bits and, and cause microscopic damage that just keeps on you know injuring the kidney over and over and over again. Um, and that um, should be addressable um, with um, a similar alkalinizing diet, plant-focused diet, um, you know, um, including this medical food keto citra. So uh, I'm kind of very excited about tackling that as well. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing what comes next from you and, and, and you as well, Jess. So thank you both so much for joining me. And um, like I said, anybody who's interested in, in learning more can check out any of those websites and we can always we'll include links to them as well. But thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Dr. Chair. Really appreciate it.